James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. If any of you lacks wisdom, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us that we would not fade away, rather that we would reach that unfading glory, that day when we will ascend and be with the Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare us for that day, that you would enable and work that completeness and that perfection that one day will be completed in your presence. We ask, Lord, that you would do that work through your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, there are many wild flowers in Massachusetts. They they come with the early spring seasons. They disappear in the fall with the hard frost. Agrimony and hop clover and anemone and thimbleweed and aster and beggar ticks and foxgloves and bellworts and bergamots and blaggerworts and these are all not made up names, they are real. Uh, blazing stars and bleeding hearts and buttercups and elderberry and foxglove and Indian potato and my favorite, loose strife, which is quite a beautiful stock. We see it by the uh, it's 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 magenta. It's it's often found by by um, wet areas. There's even an Adam and Eve or a, a putty route. Uh, it's a wild growing orchid. Uh, orchid. And now they're though they were all in full force throughout the summer, they are now dead uh, by the frost of New England winter uh, or fall, uh, whichever season we think that we're in at the moment. But wildflowers, oh, how beautiful they are, how lovely they are, and then they die and they disappear. Well, so says James, is the condition of the rich who are so very wealthy um, that, that they have begun to trust in their own riches. They have placed a great deal of assurance. They assure their heart that they are wealthy, they need not fear, while James says they are not quite so stable as they think. They need the wisdom of God, and they need the wisdom that leads to an understanding of themselves such that they would weep in their humiliation before God as they calculate their position in life, even though the world says they are secure. Well, this is an illustration that James will give to us this morning of what it means to 
embrace joy and and trust in the Lord uh, that he outlined for us in the previous section. Maybe you've been left with questions last week, and those questions would be appropriate for us. James introduced himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you, he is Jesus' half-brother, James is. They share Mary as their mother, and yet Joseph is the father of James, but not of Jesus. God alone is the father of Jesus. Jesus was created through the immaculate uh, pardon me, through, through, through the incarnation, forgive me, uh, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> James has presented himself in this way also as, uh, as he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Uh, he has in view not just Jewish persons, but Christians everywhere who are the true Israel of God. And the true Israel of God are, is, Christians, those who confess faith in Jesus Christ, those who yield to Christ as Lord and Savior, those who have trusted in him unto salvation. Uh, they are the true Israel of Christ. That's the argument that the Apostle Paul makes replete throughout his epistles, but especially so in the book of Romans. Not all are of Israel who are of Abraham, of his seed. Now, this is the argument, that those who are of the faith are of the Lord Jesus Christ, are of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's writing to Christians everywhere. And he says in verse 2, Count it all joy when you meet various trials, or trials of various kinds. And the connection is that trials uh, teach a Christian perseverance. They teach us stickability, steadfastness, endurance. Stickability, as my, my friend Dr. Derek Thomas loves to say. But, but there are temptations in the Christian life, aren't there? Uh, to not quite stick to the gospel promises. To say, well, you know, what I really need more than anything else is I need, I need other things. I have a, a greater appetite for other things on any given Sunday morning. But the truth is that we need Endurance, we need perseverance, doing the things which please God, pursuing the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might. There are temptations. There are temptations that we will encounter not only to cast off the Lord for a moment because something else is more urgent, but more so than this, to simply give up. You say the Christian life is difficult. It's hard to be the only believer in my home. It's hard to be the only one who goes to church. It's hard to go to church alone. It's, it's hard to, to be the only one who's a Christian in my company. It's, it's hard to say, I need Sunday off to my boss when everyone else works on Sunday. And it's so very lucrative. I'm giving up a great deal and not being there on Sunday. There's so much about the Christian life that is difficult to take up my cross every day and follow Jesus Christ and to do so even when life gets really difficult or when I encounter trials of various kinds. And I experience, as John Newton says, the losses and crosses of the Christian life. But trials, when considered biblically and in light of our bondservant to Jesus Christ, harden a believer's life. Harden a believer's faith and grant us endurance. The effect is that 
God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, perfecting, completing, such that we will one day lack nothing. Well, in what way, as we go home last Sunday, we might have been we might have had this question. In what way can I count my varied trials joyous? How can I find joy in the midst of my trial? And we alluded to something of an answer, but James will provide us a full fuller explanation. How can I look at what troubles me and causes sleepless nights and anguish and sadness and anxiety and fear as something over which I ought to rejoice? How can I how can I change my countenance in a moment from sadness and grief to joy and rejoicing? Uh, it's, it's something that even with tears in our eyes, the Christian is quite capable of. And James will show us the way this morning. The truth is that trials teach us and mature us and harden our faith. But how, and, and, and we know this, but how can we make that connection to joy Wisdom is the key, not the wisdom of the world, but but the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. So we see four things here. James will teach us about wisdom. James will teach us about God. And then James will teach us about prayer. And then he'll illustrate all of this teaching for us in, in, in one particular illustration as it relates to wealth and poverty. So let's look at these things together. First, wisdom. We're looking forward to the day when we will stand perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perhaps we cannot see quite yet what this will be like. We're in the thick of the entanglements of our circumstances, so much so that it seems that our circumstances and our trials and our suffering and our anxiety and our fears and our overwhelming sense of all the things that we have to do in any given day seem to really lack any purpose in any given moment. We become embittered and pessimistic about our lot in life and the troubles that wait for us the very next day in the same way. So many of our trials really don't seem to look anything like at all, by any of the stretch of the imagination, purpose. Purposeful. Rather, it seems directionless and purposeless mess, sort of, Certainly not like stepping stones to maturity. We're just trying to keep our heads above water, and much of what we've already endured seems like one failure after another of faith, and we really don't feel like we're, we're progressing toward completeness. We're lacking in so very much. Our assurance suffers. Our prayer life suffers. Or perhaps we accept that our circumstances are designed by the Lord to exert those pressures and impose uh, those tests which in due time will bear the fruit, increasing maturity, but, but we find that seeing life like that doesn't really make it either easy or plain, and we really don't know which way to turn sometimes. Perhaps there's more than one way opening up before us, and there's difficulties in making a decision which way forward will God bless. What, what should I do? Where do I go? Or maybe we understand and we accept these things. We have a mature perspective on our trials, but, but we're discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged this morning because blow after blow after blow seems to come and each day seems filled with failure and you wish you approached your life and each new day in a better and more godly way, but 
but you're wondering what God is doing and why he allows the worldly and pagan people around you to, 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 to pursue their paths of pleasure with relative ease. They seem to succeed so well, and you wonder why God continues to give you daily trials and that make living very difficult for you, and you greatly desire that peace, but you can't see it coming just yet. We need wisdom. We need wisdom, the wisdom that sees all of life as serving the purposes of God, as bond servant to service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of wisdom do we need? Well, we need biblical wisdom. There's wisdom spoken about in Scripture. It's personified in in the Song of in Solomon's writings in Ecclesiastes and in, in in Proverbs. Wisdom cries out in the streets, calls for young men and young women to come, come and learn the truth. The wisdom of Solomon was practical sagacity. It's the ability to apply uh, what what he knew about God and his creation and theology to the problems of life. It trickled down into daily decisions and, 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 and an understanding of the knowledge that he gleaned. The Lord Jesus spoke about wisdom in Luke 21, 15. The Lord promised his disciples that at any time when they faced any trial, they would be given a mouth and wisdom or an ability to speak appropriately to a situation because God would be with them, the Holy Spirit. Stephen had a particular gift of preeminently wisdom in the purpose of his ministry as we see it expounded in Acts chapter 6, 10. There's another side of wisdom that's, that's exemplified in 1 Corinthians 1, 21. There's the wisdom which sees the meaning and significance of things, that the wise people and the gifted are not wise unto eternity and unto a knowledge of God. But God has caused the gospel to be preached. Seemingly, so to the world is foolishness, but thus all who believe have been given the wisdom of God through Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God himself. If wisdom is personified in Scripture, surely it's Jesus. Surely, Jesus, the Logos, is the wisdom of God. That's the argument of 1 Corinthians 1. So if you're a Christian, God himself has made you wise unto salvation. You've been granted a wisdom no one in the world will ever receive. I read an article this morning. It's funny, the articles that just seem to come up in my feeds, but there was an article from a Stanford University professor who is not a Christian, But he's just asking the question about free will. Do human beings have free will? It's a a glorious question, the answer of which is no, no longer. But this man, this non-Christian man, came to the conclusion himself in scientific analysis that no, mankind does not have free will for the very reason why I would and the Bible would reject the same idea. Adam and Eve had free will. But since the fall, no, no longer do we have free will. The reason why is because we are subject to all manner of causation around us. We think that we determine the course of the events of our time. But how can you hold back by your own free will the events of perhaps a a car accident when you leave that will ultimately kill you? You You can't change that. You can't stop that from happening by a determination of your will. You you breathe, but you don't think about it. How do you breathe? By the will of God. You're subject to 
the will of God. Your life is sustained because God has determined it to be so until the day when he withdraws the breath of life from you and from me. Our wills are subject to so many criteria or outside influences, and even this non-Christian man is convinced of that fact. Well, if you're a Christian this morning, you've become convinced of the same fact, that you, you must submit to the will of God in Christ Jesus and believe in him. If you're a Christian, God has made you wise unto salvation. The world does its best to reach wisdom, but the apex of wisdom is to come to a knowledge of God and of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, God has made you wise. So having partaken of that wisdom, doesn't it seem the most appropriate thing is if you need wisdom, greater wisdom, how to approach life, how best to live, how best to change your behaviors, flee from sin, pursue righteousness and holiness, wouldn't it be to go to that same giving God and say, Lord, give me greater wisdom? Help me to think aright about life, about my soul. Many of us think that wisdom is equated with many other things. Financial abilities, forecasting skills, deep reason that equates with a well-forged opinion that sees the world as it is. Or you can see through obfuscation or complicated matters. I like certain listening to certain individuals who seem to have a a certain worldly sagacity and a wisdom, they can cut through a matter and see the point right at the center of it in far faster ways than I myself can when I'm simply slogging along in the background waiting, how did he get there? How did she get to that point? These are persons, more often than not, if they're not a believer, they're persons with knowledge, but they're not people with wisdom. The person who is wise has made use of what the Bible says, has heard the testimony of God, has believed and repented and turned in faith to Jesus Christ. In order to pursue God's way of understanding life and the world, we need the word of God to guide our conduct, the conduct of others through life's mazes and problems. And maybe you're facing all kinds of different mazes and problems. And of course, James has said various trials are trials of various kinds. What do you need? He identifies it in verse 5, wisdom. You need wisdom. Well, we've seen wisdom, but now we need to see something of the nature of God, something about the nature of God. James has three things to tell us here about the nature of God. And and right off the bat, he says it. If any, it's, it's glorious simplicity, isn't it? So much about what the Bible offers uh, of the benefits that we receive from God in Christ Aren't they this simple? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Do you need help in the midst of your trials? Ask of God. Do you need salvation? Do you need to find Christ? Do you want Christ more active in your life? Do you want to be transformed in the image of your Savior. Ask of God. God is one to whom we may bring the requests. Boldly approach the throne of grace. Are we not told in Hebrews? James's doctrine of God is such that he teaches us three things about him. And the first of which is that God's nature is to give. This is under the second point of our sermon, something about God. James is teaching us about God. But there are three 
things that he teaches us about God, and the first of which is God's nature is to give. And, and James says literally, let him ask of, a give, of the giving God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the giving God. That's what he says. God is merciful, he is loving, he is righteous, he is just. All of these things are ceaselessly true, but he is also supremely a giving God. Now this is vastly different, this idea of God, from every other religious system of thought. Even Roman Catholicism, there's there's these alternative systems of thought where it's the duty of human beings to bring something to divinity uh, requiring and, and deserving something to be given on the basis of the gift that we ourselves have given to God. It's the duty of human beings to perform some form of service for the sake of receiving some favor. But this is not true of the eternal living God. Before you gave a single thought to God, he determined to save you through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we read in Revelation chapter 17 of the names of all those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That means before you lived and walked and, and worked, before you loved and breathed and, and walked, before any of it, before even the world in which you live was ever created, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. Before you ever gave to God, he gave to you. Before you ever even thought of giving anything to God, even your notice of God, he gave to you his beloved son. We live in such a time now in 2023, <clears throat> we are well 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died. Even when we were at enmity with God, Christ died for you. Think about it. Your Savior died for you and made payment for your sin in that glorious transaction with God of justification whereby our sins were transferred to him, his righteousness is imputed to us. That was accomplished and completed before you ever took breath. And in the course of God's gracious mercy, in the course of your human life, the day came when you became convinced that what you heard about Christ was true and real, and you needed to believe and repent and you believed and you repented and you came into full possession of that eternal life that had already been accomplished and promised to you. And one day when, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we will come into full possession of all the benefits that have been granted to us in Christ Jesus. And there we will be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. God's nature is to give. God is the one who gives, though he requires obedience and faith. These are in response to his giving. All we ever do, we don't give as an initiator. We give as a receiver in only in response. Anything that you ever give to God, anything that you ever put into the plate, the giving of your time and talents, your abilities, yes, God has given every single one of you and me a gift 
that we might serve one another and the Lord with it. All of these things, time, talent, treasure, all of it, before you ever gave anything to God, he gave to you first, his son. Before you ever gave anything to God, he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life and determined to save you according to his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. If you're truly a child of God, he is the beginner, the supplier of all. Through no gift whatsoever or coercion on our part, God God gives. The second thing James tells us about God under this second point is that God's giving is unrestricted. He gives liberally or generously. But those are not yet really the best descriptions of the word that, that James uses here. James says that God gives singly. God gives in a single way, not plagued with the duplicitousness of humanity. When you give, don't you give with at least some ulterior motive? I'm giving out of obligation. How many things do we give because we're obliged? I'm attending a wedding. I'm going to a shower. It's their birthday. I have to do it. How many of us give with the idea that hopefully the the receiver will praise us and really thank us? We'll recognize that we gave a very thoughtful gift. Or we'll recognize that we gave a very costly gift. God does not do that. God's zeal is for the glory of his son. God's zealous jealousy is that you and I would praise his son. And you see, contrary to human duplicitousness, the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to be praised. God has an exclusive preoccupation. That's why James uses that word single. He has an exclusive preoccupation with giving. He has set his mind on one task as if that's all he has to do. And that all he has to do is to give and to give and to give. And surely isn't Ephesians 1 about the, the, the generosity and the kind intention of the will of God to give and to give and to give. Thirdly, God's welcome never fails. We learn that God's nature is to give, but God's giving is unrestrictive, but God's welcome never fails. It's verse 5. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Without reproach. Has anyone ever had to approach a bank uh, looking for a mortgage? And you approach the bank waiting for them to chide you about something, whether that's an old bill that you forgot to pay over a 30-day period, you were five days late, and you paid it, you just forgot, or, or your internet wasn't working at home, or something along those lines, and so it was a slight little tiny ding. Or maybe you got sick during a certain period in your life, or you were unemployed, and it presented some financial challenges for you. And you're waiting to approach the bank with something of a reproach, expecting it to come. Well, you, you, you will never approach God in that way. Have you ever had to go to a father or a mother and to request a, a loan or to request that, 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 that allowance that you hadn't yet received? You're waiting for something like, well, you weren't such a good child over the last couple of weeks. 
you neglected your chores and you didn't do everything that you were supposed to do, you were rather quick about it and you missed a few things, well, you'll never hear that from God. You'll never hear that from God because Christ has borne our reproach, hasn't he? He has borne our reproach. The, 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 the punishment that was due to us fell upon him. And so we may approach God, this generous, singular-focused God, this giving God, and we will not hear reproach because Christ has borne our reproach. Human giving is often spoiled with the pride of the giver. The burden placed upon the recipient to give something back of worthy or equal value, often the giver reminds in subtle ways the recipient about the gift that was given. Our contrary thinking assumes the worst of God, doesn't doesn't it? He'll give me, he will not give anything more to me because I've misused his grace and mercy and gifts and forgiveness so many times before. God's not going to give me as much as I really need. He'll only give me a little bit, leading us often to determine that we can no longer ask anything of him, and so our prayer life fails because we have lost any sense of assurance that God is a giving God. But what is that what is that bitterness born out of? Our own inadequacy. It's not born out of the giving nature of God. It's born out of a sense of our own inadequacy. Don't let our own sense of inadequacy lead us to not ask of God who gives without reproach. Sometimes we believe that God is holding our sins against us. We think we can't ask anything of him anymore. We think he remembers our unfaithfulness. That he would deny any who might not ask with the purest of heart. But the hymn writer knew about this, and that's why he wrote, Look, Lord, look not on the misusings of your grace. Look not on our misusings of your grace. The good and happy news for the believer is that God does not look upon those misusings of his grace. But the Lord who hears, who gives to all, who is generous, he gives without reproach. Our sins and misusings never call his generosity to question because he is the giving God. So we've learned something about wisdom. We've learned something about the nature of God. And now we learn something about prayer. Third point in our sermon this morning. There's such hope in prayer, knowing that God is a giving God, isn't there? If God is a giving God who gives without reproach, whose very nature is to give, who gives abundantly and generously, doesn't that help us in prayer? Shouldn't that enliven our prayer life such that we would ask for far more than we do? The problem is verses 6 through 8 follow on verse 5. And verses 6 through 8 are about the insincerity and the lack of integrity on our part as the people of God. But there's no question in verse 5 about the sincerity and integrity of the God who will not withhold and who will not reproach us, but our sincerity has to be uh, questioned. 
In reality, we need to ask ourselves daily the question, if we are approaching the Lord asking for wisdom, greater growth in holiness, more conformity or transformity to the image of Christ Jesus, shouldn't we ask, do I really want this? Do I really want to go forward with God? I want to ask wisdom of God, but that wisdom from God might lead me to make some very uncomfortable choices in my life. To recognize that I can no longer live the way that I've lived. I can no longer do the things that I've done. I can no longer move amongst the same groups of people that I've moved amongst. That there are some changes that have to happen in my life. I have to put my phone down more often and shut the television off. Spend more time in the Word of God and become a little bit more serious about worship and about faithfulness and about serving the Lord as my days on this earth wane. We often, I'm afraid, have a foot in each camp. We sit astride the world. We want God's blessings. We wish for His wisdom. So that we can advance in the world our own design for ourselves. That's not God's plan. Are we wholeheartedly committed to his way, to his wisdom and not our own, to seeing things as he sees them? We often doubt that he'll give us what we ask. Perhaps we doubt within ourselves whether we really want what we're asking of him. James uses two key words here. He says, don't do these two things. One, don't doubt. Don't ask with doubt. Don't ask on one hand, Lord, would you give me this? Would you help me with that? Meanwhile, in the inner place of our heart, thinking God doesn't see, doubting that he can, that he will, or really that we want it. It means to be hesitant to decide, to have two minds, uncommitted allegiance. Later he uses a second word, and that is this idea of being two-souled, a double-minded man, a, a divided soul, to be of two minds. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 6, 24. Divided loyalties cannot be sustained. Let's say you're friends with the world this morning and you, you've got your foot in the camp of the Christian. You say, I'm following Christ. Oh, but there's so much that's attractive about the world that you love. And you're living the other six days of the week in a worldly way. Your conversations are worldly. Your mind is worldly. Your friends are worldly. Your pursuit of money is worldly. The things that make you laugh is worldly. The state of your heart is more worldly than Christian. Jesus says one master will be chosen. The divided loyalties cannot be sustained. That person is like a storm-tossed individual, driven and tossed by the world. And that person has a divided soul. And he says, eventually you will love one master and hate the other. And which will it be? There are two results for a person that's like that. Their prayers are bereft of power. Prayers are bereft of power and and you're a double-minded individual. You're unstable in all your ways. You're not secure with God. You're really not secure at all. Jesus taught this same principle, didn't he? He said, those who refuse to forgive will not be forgiven. Those who will not give mercy will not receive mercy. Didn't he illustrate this time and again? And James is saying, if you ask with a double-minded, two-heartedness, 
If your foot is in each camp of the world and of Christ, and you ask in a doubting sort of way, you won't receive anything. A doubting person doesn't simply have a problem with weak faith. We're not talking about that. We all have weak faith, don't we not? We all struggle with this. We struggle with a sense of our own sinfulness and our own self, and we grieve over it, and we've disqualified ourselves from the kingdom of God so countless times, have we not? By our own sins. But God, we know, we trust. At the same time, we trust in this giving God. We know that God is generous and kind and merciful, but we doubt whether or not he can be merciful to me because I'm such a wretched sinner. There's a difference between that individual and another one who approaches God without feeling any of that and says, Lord, give me wisdom, walks away and forgets what he even asked for. Doesn't even know what he looks like. He walks out and he begins to do all the worldly things he's ever done. Oh, he's a holy saint in private prayer. But when he gets up from his knees, he's as wicked as any other worldly person. And all his conversations are just like the rest of those around him. That's the kind of person we're talking about. That kind of person lacks a moral and spiritual commitment to God. That kind of person has no real devotion to God, is not loyal to him, will receive nothing. Sometimes we say that we've asked God for greater wisdom and help in the wisdom uh, and help and, and, and in the wisdom which he provides that enables our abstinence from sin. That's what we want. And we complain against the Lord because we, we haven't yet received or perceived that he has provided for us. And James says the problem is ours. We're doubtful. We're, we're double minded. We're tossed about by our own ambitions and emotions and doubts and weaknesses. We want an answer from God. And James is saying, if you want an answer from God, seek it in faith. Nothing wavering, but of one purpose, trusting that God will answer it in his time, but proving that meanwhile you will live faithfully and trust that God's good purposes will be played out. And he'll answer you or give you peace about what you've asked for. And that's really what we need, a heart purged from delusion, eyes clear to behold God, able to evaluate truly the emptiness of the world. All that comes from the world can't be counted on. It's worthless. But do we think that we'll receive the wisdom of God when we only spend two minutes a day with him in hurried prayer? We get it in and then we move on. Isn't that really a double-mindedness and a doubt that he is the living God, the giving God? We have not because we have not asked. If we're not secure with God, we're not really secure at all, are we? We need God's wisdom. We need to look at our relationship with God. Our relationship with him lacks wholeness. Prove this out in the secret place of prayer. Pursue the Lord. Ask of him. Lastly, we see the illustration that James is teaching. We've heard all of these things, and the illustration that he gives us is simply that of one who is wealthy and one who is poor. Here is a believer, one is poor, one is wealthy. And he, he, he speaks about the, the poor man, first of all, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. The poor person who sees that 
There is so much that I have need of. In fact, I, I'm there's there's a word used in this day and age called food insecurity. What does that mean? I guess I'm food insecure because I probably only have about a week and a half of food and meals in the house. What what do I do after that? I'm dependent upon grocery stores being opened. I'm dependent upon the next paycheck. I'm, I'm dependent on a lot of things. But there are people who really struggle and they don't know what they're going to eat tomorrow. They really and truly don't. The single mother who's trying to provide, who was left behind by a husband who abandoned his obligations, that woman is struggling day by day to put food on the table and she stops every day at the end of each day to bring groceries home to make food for her children, begins the same process the next day and it's difficult. It's so very difficult. With a striving family, the mother and father who are doing everything that they can to provide for their children, or the individual who's doing everything that he can to to eke out a living and, and to bring home what he needs or she needs to eke out an existence, but it's never enough. It's just never enough. They didn't come from money. They don't have a lot of money. And every time they, they, they get something, it seems to break and wear down and they need something more or some new repair. And it just seems that the credit card bills get deeper and deeper. James says, here's an illustration of all the principles that he's been teaching us. Consider the eternal state of your soul. Consider the lot of your life and what you have been given in Jesus Christ. Don't we need a real, a real awakening to help us to recognize that this world is not the end? It's not all there is. The psalmist speaks about this world and he says, what, how, do we, how long do we live? 60 years, maybe 80 if we're fortunate and God gives us that amount of time. And then we die. But after that, what? Eternity. Unfailing, unending time. And for the believer born in humble circumstances who is trying in the worst way to eke out a living, who's worried about finances tomorrow and next week, who doesn't really need to stockpile because they don't have any stockpile. They're just simply trying to, to live and pay today's bills and to let tomorrow worry about itself. You have been given the riches of God in Jesus Christ. You are lacking, though you lack physically, and you, your Lord, your Father, your giving God will supply your needs, will sustain you. The psalmist says, I have never seen the righteous begging for bread. God will provide. You're here today, are you not? You're fed. Your home is warm. You're clothed. You live in the wealthiest nation in the world. You talk to me about your financial problems, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that you make a hundred times more than, than someone in any one of the countries on the continent of Africa, just about in South America, or any other nation in the world. Very few nations in the world are richer than America. If you're an American, you're wealthy, deeply wealthy, such that you take for granted, we take for granted our wealth and the significance of what we have. 
the daily meals that we enjoy, the homes that we own, the cars that we have and possess, the things that we buy off of Amazon. It doesn't take very much to obtain what we need, and most of us have pretty much most of what we need. That's wealth. That's wealth. But those who are in humble circumstances, you and I are to glory in our high position in the kingdom of God. Not in our wealth, not in what we have. You see, because that's where we find ourselves in the second half, predominantly, of what the James says here. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. You see, this is the season of fall, and we have seen wildflowers growing but they're all passing away under the, the hard frost of a fall weather. And once snow comes, it will bury them all. They will disappear. We are all like that, are we not? Our flesh is like that. One day you will disappear from the face of this earth. One day all you have will be gone. It will be dissipated. Either Uncle Sam will eat it all up in your, in your aged care, in your, in your, your care in the, in the, as you're infirm, or... You'll leave it to your children or to someone else whom you love or care for. And what will happen? Your name will will be forgotten. What will last? What will last? What is preserved in the last day? James says, look, the rich man, the wealthy, those who have a great deal, need to recognize that they will one day pass from this world. There's a great affliction that afflicts mankind. And what is it but wealth? Prosperity. I forget who said it, but someone said that prosperity is one of the greatest afflictions for believers. Having a lot. The fact that you and I don't need to here in wealthy, in the wealthy West, we don't have to awaken in the morning and wonder, how am I going to obtain food? How in the world will I obtain the fuel that I need to drive my car and get to work? Where will my clean water come from this morning? How can I wash my clothing? And when I go to clothe my, wash my clothing, how will I be safe when I do it? And when I go to work, who will keep me safe? How will I be safe as I walk out into the streets? We don't have to think about those things very much, do we? You're wealthy. You have prosperity. You drive in your air-conditioned cars. We all do. We lock the doors. We get to our destination. We get out. We drive home. We park in our driveway or in our, 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 our parking garage. We walk into our home. We lock the door. We get into our warm bed. The heat is running. And we go into the larder or we go into the kitchen and the fridge as my dear friend Norman loves to call it, the icebox. You open it, and there's fresh food there. It's already cooked. Or there's leftovers. Or there's something to be eaten. You open up a can, or you open up something from the freezer. You eat it. You leave the dishes in the sink, and you go to bed. Your stomach, your belly is full. You awaken in the morning, and you do it all over again. And you wait for the paycheck at the end of the week. Somehow you make it through. 
Doesn't that inure us to the idea that each day we should awaken and pray as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, give me my, my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. We've lost a sense of our need of God. We've lost a sense of our need of God. That's why we need wisdom. And James is saying you need wisdom. You need wisdom to think rightly about life, to see your need of God, to see where your real riches lie, to see where your highest benefits as a child of God really are. And and God who is generous, he is a giving God, will as a singular focus in giving to you all that you need so that you may live wisely before him. May God help us to see our need of him. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be wise unto salvation, wise under the recognition of the fact that we need you more than anything else. Please let the totality of our lives clearly illustrate that. Lord, forgive us for the moments when we have left off the worship of God. We've neglected the word. We've walked away from the Christian disciplines. We've not done the things we ought to have done simply because, Lord, if we admit it, if we are honest before you, and if we confess our sins to you, oh, Lord, we sometimes would rather have the our worldly appetites met. Sometimes we... Even while asking with you, we ask in a double-minded way. We're convinced, really, that what we need more than you is more money, more something, more rest, more recreation, more fun, more mindlessness, more of whatever gets us going or calms us down. Lord, teach us. Give us an appetite for you. We ask this sincerely, not in a double-minded way. Having some clarity this morning, Lord, we ask that you would grant us a single-hearted devotion to Jesus Christ. Grant us, Lord, growth and maturity. Make us complete. Bring us to a position, ultimately, when we die one day, where we are lacking in nothing. Use our trials and our suffering. Use our circumstances to teach us endurance And in the midst of all of that, as we endure, Lord, teach us joy in the innermost person as we calculate our riches in Christ Jesus. Not in the crap that we have from this world. Oh, Lord, teach us the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And give us joy in the midst of suffering. Give us, Lord, humiliation in the midst of our gloating over all of our resources and give us, O God, glorious joy in our high standing in Jesus Christ, in our poverty. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.